Hello, I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is KGOU's How Curious. What you're about to hear is a reimagining of the moment when a young Oklahoma girl's life changed forever back in 1913. A gusher. A gusher is a daggum gusher. What does that mean? <laughs> Why, little missy, it means you're going to be one rich color gal. That's from a documentary on the YouTube channel of the African-American History is American History. The girl's name was Sarah Rector. That's undisputed. So is the fact that she was owner of a land allotment which became a huge source of oil. But much about Sarah is unknown and many accounts of her life contain errors, including the one just mentioned here. During the period directly following that daggum gusher gushing, Rector became the subject of countless rumours. Then, as the decades passed, she faded from the public eye. Even members of Sarah's own family only became aware of the extraordinary nature of her life after her death in 1967. I spoke with three of her nieces, daughters of Sarah's younger sister Rosa, Donna Brown Tompkins, Rosina Graves and Debbie Brown. We knew she had more things than we did and my mother was just like, she can afford it. But it never dawned on us either way of being rich and famous because she didn't act any differently or dress any differently. And we call her Aunt Sister, because my mother always referred to her as Sister. Kathleen Watkins is an Oklahoma City playwright whose works focus on little-known aspects of African-American history. She heard about Sarah for the first time in 2017. I was really looking for a, a subject. I always have my ears open. Then she met up with a friend. She said, Kathleen, you will not believe what I heard last night. I said, what? And she said, have you heard of Sarah Rector? Say, no, I never heard of her. Look her up. Kathleen did look her up and went on to write a play about Sarah called Brown Skinned Rich Girl. I looked her up too and quickly found that there's not much out there about Sarah Rector that's reliable. Still, thanks to the contributors to this episode, plus a few good sources, today I hope either to stick to the truth or at least informed historical conjecture. Here goes. Sarah Rector was born in 1902 in what is now northeast Oklahoma, but which was then Indian Territory. Her parents were farmers and freedmen, the term used to describe African-American ex-slaves of Native American tribes and their descendants. As citizens of the Muscogee Nation, eligible Rector family members each received 160 acres of land. But according to Anita Arnold of OKC's Black Liberated Arts Center, the allotment given to Sarah seemed pretty worthless, at least on the surface. The land that they gave to Sarah was so sandy and rocky, her father just despaired that it wouldn't grow anything. Right, and he had to pay taxes on it, didn't he? He did. The taxes were around $30 a year, which would be close to $1,000 today. In order to pay the taxes, he signed a lease with an oil company and that's when they found all this oil. She had one of the largest oil pools ever. Certainly, news of her wealth spread throughout the world, and she was getting marriage proposals. She was just 11 years old. It got my heart because I can only imagine being that age. This is playwright Kathleen Watkins again. And being told that I have all of this money and not really understanding I mean, within her family, as well as with people in the community, what that must have been like. And then when people began to come from all over to see this little black girl, it must have been so scary for her. 
It does sound really difficult. It's great mm -hmm. at the same time, but that's a lot to take on. Yeah, because not only that, they were killing a lot of the children too. Two years earlier, a brother and sister around Sarah's age had been murdered for their land allotments. Herbert and Stella Sells had lived in Taft, the closest town to the Rector Farm, and it's very likely that Sarah knew them. I think that if it had not been for the publicity she got, maybe she would have also been a victim to that. Newspapers around the world had taken up Sarah's story. Though as mentioned earlier, their reports often contain more fiction than fact. People just, I think, wrote what they wanted to write in order to capture people's attention, like all makes any rich. That egregious headline ran in the Washington Post in early 1914. But it was a series of articles published in the African-American newspaper, the Chicago Defender, which prompted a number of notable black activists to get involved, including W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois wrote to the Rector family's local judge on June the 6th of 1914 regarding some of the alarming claims that had been made in the Defender and elsewhere. Sarah Rector's niece, Debbie Brown, shared Judge Leahy's response, which was composed five days later. There's a copy of it on the How Curious webpage. Leahy confirms that as the Muscogee County judge, he has jurisdiction over Sarah's estate, and he was evidently no stranger to situations like Sarah's. As is my practice with these larger estates, I went to the rector home on a Sunday and as soon as oil was discovered, and in the presence of the parents, the guardian and his attorney took up and discussed the entire situation, etc., and agreed upon certain changes looking towards the betterment of conditions for Sarah Rector and the entire family. One of them was the construction of a five-bedroom home, putting pay to claims that Sarah was living in a shack. The claim that she was uneducated was false. She was attending the local Taft school, and during the discussion, Sarah's father agreed that once she was a few months older, he would allow her to travel to attend a more prestigious institution elsewhere. The Defender articles had also expressed consternation regarding the handling of Sarah's money and that she had been assigned a white guardian who was getting a fabulous sum but only allowing Sarah a few dollars. At that time in Oklahoma, it was standard to assign guardians to look after the assets of wealthy non-white children. Those guardians often took the form of white businessmen and alas, many of them did swindle their young charges. However, Leahy had already garnered a reputation for taking action against such grafters, and he sought to reassure Du Bois on this point. As to this ward having a white guardian, this is true. The parents themselves selected him, his name being T.J. Porter, cattleman and neighbor of this family, who has been their benefactor for years and long before there was any possibility of their ever having any money. In fact, most of Sarah's money was placed in investments. In the autumn of 1914, Sarah's father permitted her and her older sister, Rebecca, to travel to the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, where they were enrolled in its elementary school. From Tuskegee, the girls moved on to Fisk University in Tennessee, and that's where they were when the Rector family quietly relocated to Kansas City, Missouri. There they moved into a substantial house located on East 12th Street, Often referred to as the Sarah Rector Mansion, it was actually owned by Sarah's mother, but it was home to the entire close-knit Rector clan. When Sarah turned 21, she was finally able to manage her own money, and she quickly developed a taste for life's finer things. Here's her niece, Debbie Brown. We had a store here in the downtown area where blacks could not shop in their store. It was Emory Bird Fair. And they would lock their doors up and close early to allow her to come down there and shop. 
and she constantly bought cars because she and my uncle Alfred kept wrecking them. Just go buy another one. Right, you just go buy another one. There's even one time that, well, probably more than that, she was a fast driver. And the cop stopped her and she said, do you know who I am? (laughs) Kathleen Watkins again, and she included that detail in her play about Sarah. Sarah also seems to have thoroughly enjoyed living in one of the hottest jazz scenes in the nation. She did love to party. She, yeah, she did like music. Oh, yeah. She entertained Count Basie, Duke Ellington, you know, and all the big names. She enjoyed her life. When people say, what happened to her money? Go, she enjoyed life. She spent it. She bought houses. She bought cars. She enjoyed it. Sarah married twice. She was 20 when she and her first husband wed. The couple had three sons before going their separate ways after around seven years. She married her second husband, a Kansas City restaurant owner, in 1934, and they were together until she died. And although the 1929 Wall Street crash apparently caused her to lose a lot of money, she nonetheless remained comfortable for the rest of her life and very close with her family. So this was one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading about your aunt's story is... How strange it must have been to suddenly be so wealthy, not just compared to everybody else in the town, but everybody else in her family. But it sounds like your family dealt with it really well. She was not kind of like made to be something separate and apart. Is that right? That is correct. Because even when she bought her farm, that's where the family went a lot. And she had a great big old garden. And all the adults that went out, they helped with the garden and planted stuff. It wasn't differentiate that it was her farm is it was a farm where we all went and we just had a good time and what do you remember about her was she kind to you was she fun oh well they was usually sitting around talking amongst themselves and we just you know to hang sister and you go about your business and as far as i knew she was nice to me you know it was just you didn't have a real tight relationship we were not like kids are now, kids get in adult conversations. When we was growing up, when they was talking about adult things, we were not there. When Sarah died in 1967, Donna was 12 and Rosina and Debbie were in their late teens. As mentioned earlier, that's when they began to grasp how exceptional their aunt's life had been. At the same time, however, they were warned against exploring it too deeply, at least with regard to one aspect. After she passed, I remember my mom and her uncle going to Oklahoma a lot. And they came back one time and got all of us together and said, whatever you hear about Oklahoma or whatever is down there, leave it alone. It's dangerous. It's not worth it. And my mom told us some of the story about the sales children. This was over half a century on from their murder. We truly believe that my grandmother moved everybody up here to Kansas City just from the fear of being blown up because of the money. And that's why, you know, my mom was like, don't go down there. My uncle, don't go down there. After they passed, just going down there for genealogy and stuff, the three of us, my oldest brother's like, y'all don't need to be going down there. Mama done told y'all, don't go down there talking about you're a rector. And that was only about 10 years, 15 years ago. So the nieces have largely steered clear of Oklahoma, though Sarah herself is buried here in Taft, very close to where she grew up. But while they avoid that part of their aunt's story, they are concerned about misinformation spread regarding other aspects of Sarah's life, including her physical self. 
Currently, if you search for Sarah Rector online, two black and white images repeatedly surface. One is a full-length shot of a solemn girl aged around 12 years. Her hair's in pigtails, she's wearing a plaid dress, and her right hand is holding onto a chair. The other is a headshot of a young woman. Her hair is centre-parted and seems to be plaited on top of her head. She's wearing a dark blouse or dress with some pale lace and a bow around the collar. But Sarah's nieces are adamant that neither of these photos are actually of their aunt. The lady photo of Sarah Rector, her name is actually Callie House. You type in Callie House, you'll see the same picture. I tried it and it's true. Miss House, a civil rights activist, was born over 50 years before Sarah. And what about the young girl, which is the picture you most often see? Our mother even said, that's not her. That's not the sister. It's not our aunt. It's not our family. If our family is going to be out there, at least have the right picture out there. The three images of the actual Sarah that you can find on the How Curious webpage were kindly shared with us by Debbie Brown. In one, Sarah is with her first husband, Kenneth Campbell. In another, she sits beside a pool with one of her brothers-in-law. And in the third, she's playing with a young nephew. And she does indeed seem to be enjoying her life. Thank you so much to Sarah's nieces and all the contributors to today's episode. Thanks also to Cody Clark and Deirdre Anderson and to John McGraw, who read the excerpts from Judge Leahy's letter. Again, you can find that and the photos of Sarah, plus one of her mother, on the How Curious webpage. Go to kgou.org, then you'll find it under the Programs tab. Sarah Rector's story is the last in the current series of How Curious. We'll be back in the autumn. In the meantime, you can find all of the previous episodes on the KGOU site or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and How Curious is a KGOU public radio production. The editor is Logan Layden, and David Gray composed our theme music. And please don't forget, if you have an Oklahoma-related question or an idea for a subject for a future episode, do send it to us via curious at kgou.org. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR.